Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood and you're listening to us live today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Although many of us often take it for granted As we go about our daily lives, Cape Cod is a miraculous place to live in. It's also a dangerous environment for various animals, one of the top three places in the world for marine strandings, and a contentious place for fishermen, surfers, scientists, and business people, all of whom have on occasion differing ideas over how we manage our waters and the species who live in them. And beyond all that, it's a fabulous place to have spent your career as a marine biologist. Joining me to talk about that and the health of the oceans and the animals that live there, as well as the well-being and survival of the planet, is author, lecturer, and longtime Town of Orleans conservation administrator, shellfish biologist, Sandy McFarlane. We'll be talking about her latest book, Swirling Currents, Controversy, Compromise, and Dynamic Coastal Change. Sandy McFarland, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Ira. It is really a pleasure to be here. So I bet you've met other marine biologists who have told you that you were one of the luckiest people in the world to be working on Cape Cod. Is that true? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much true, yes. So when you go to conferences and stuff, people people like say, wow, when are you leaving? <laughs> no, the, the Cape is just a fascinating place to do the work that I was doing and, and continue to do as well. So talk about what makes the Cape such a perfect microcosm for studying global marine resource issues. Well, it's an accident of geology and geography, actually. When the glaciers left behind Cape Cod, they left this little spit of land that happens to be positioned between the cold waters of the north and the warm waters of the south. And it just sticks out from Massachusetts. And it has this this area that is a confluence between those two things. So it was classified as what they call a biogeographic zone many, many years ago, where the warm water species from the south met the cold water species from the north. And that confluence meant that all the nutrients were also a confluence. And everybody just, everybody, everything just came and swam. And they that was where they could feed and 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 have these, these uh, combinations of factors. So it was... It, uh, something that, that uh, just isn't there everywhere. And there are a couple of those places of, that are biogeographic zones. The Cape Hatteras is another one. But the Cape is a really famous one. It's now changing, and um, a researcher by the name of Dr. Stephen Hale from EPA now calls it a leaky line. The species are now, it's not as quite as dramatic as it was. But uh, living in Orleans and working in Orleans, I saw it firsthand because Orleans has three separate estuaries. And you would think that if there's only a mile separating them as a crow flies, they'd be the same. They're not the same. There are species in Cape Cod Bay that are not in Pleasant Bay. There are species in Pleasant Bay that are not in either Town Cove or Cape Cod Bay. And a good example of that is blue crabs, that when I was working there, you had in Pleasant Bay, you had water coming in from Nantucket Sound as well as the ocean. In the Nauset system, the water coming in is only from the ocean. And then there's Cape Cod Bay that's different from the both of them. 
blue crabs were never found in Cape Cod Bay or, or Nauset, but they were plentiful in Pleasant Bay. So that's just one example. And there were examples all over the place of different things. And so here I am in Orleans looking at this, thinking everything is the same, and it's not the same at all. You know, one of the most amazing things that I learned from your book that I didn't really know was that what we think of as the Cape Cod Rotary mm-hmm. and Stop and Shop parking lot mm-hmm. used to actually be an outlet from the sea. And that, that was actually used for military boats during the Revolutionary War, you said, mm-hmm. to, to escape into the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, Jeremiah's Gutter, it was called. And they, there was a blockade in, in Boston Harbor. And so uh, the boats would come around Cape Cod Bay, go through Jeremiah's Gutter, only at high tide, because you've got the mile and a half of sand flats out in front of, of that area, and then go straight through to the ocean. And it was this waterway and they didn't have to go around Provincetown and and most a lot of them were avoiding the blockade and then there was an enterprising man who who had that area was um, tried to make it into a, a a paying canal and it just didn't work it was kept filling in so it just didn't work but that's the the vestiges are in the middle of the rotary which is why the rotary is not a manicured place that says welcome to Cape Cod welcome to Orleans welcome to East Ham it's a this this um, almost a jungle in there because it's all wetlands in the in the rotary and it still is in existence there is a um, tide gate at the cove town cove side and the water comes from cape cod bay to the town cove and it doesn't go in the other direction but in high storms it will flood and it comes from cape cod bay and you can see it you can see this whole thing and when you see a map of what might happen with climate change it's definitely part of this flooding system I know that we no longer have a robust fin fishery operating out of Cape Cod, but I didn't realize that lobsters are the most valuable single-species marine resource caught in state waters. But everything about the ocean and the marine world are intertwined as you make the case again and again in the book. And lobster fishing is very dangerous for whales. Why is that? The lobster fishing method is to have a pot on the bottom, and that pot may be a single pot or it may be tied to other pots. But in order to get that pot from from the bottom to the surface, they need to have something that comes up to the surface so they know where the pot is, the the fishermen do. So you have lines coming from the pot to the surface with buoys on them. And if it's a single pot, then there's just lines all over the place for these lobster pots. And even if they're tied together, you have one on on either end of the, the trawl, as they call it, so they can figure out where all these pots are. What happens with uh, especially right whales is that they swim through the water with their mouths open. That's what they're they're doing is sifting um, microscopic shrimp-like animals called copepods, and so they're they're just swimming through with my with their wide yeah their mouths wide open, and that means that when they come across lines in the water, they get tangled up in them, and so it's a it's a very dangerous thing for them and the. Uh, Center for Coastal Studies is got an, a disentanglement team where if a um, if a whale does get entangled, they try and disentangle it. Um, but it's the the whales can swim for miles and miles and miles with these 
ropes around them, and it's it's just a, a really um, difficult situation for the lobstermen because they they've been in Cape Cod Bay. They, I mean, they have been prevented from putting their boat their pots out early because the whales are still in the bay. So they have to wait until the whales leave before they can put their pots out. So there's a lot of of t- um, uh, cooperation with um, the regulators to try and figure out how they can both have lobsters and the whales protected as well. Are they, is this, I, I'm wondering if, if with um, the advance of technology, they might be doing away with those lines um, and maybe having beepers or something like that to tell the fishermen where their pots are? Is, is the technology it's changing? Getting, it's getting there. And they have uh, different methods that are being tested to have um, buoys that come up with um, uh, technological sound to release them from the bottom so that they can come up to the top and get their pots. All of that is being tested out. There's all kinds of different um, scenarios that are being tested now to figure out what they can do for get their pots, keep their pots down there, but be able to get them. So we try to regulate lobster traps and other kinds of fishing gear to save the whales. But every year we hear about whales, dolphins, and turtles tragically casting ashore on our beaches. Why is Cape Cod one of the top three places in the world for marine animal strandings? The shorter answer is we really don't know, but <laughs> the longer answer uh, is a whole lot of uh, probabilities, one of which is the fact that the, the Cape is literally a hook, and it's a hook for several reasons. But obviously, the when it was termed by uh, Thoreau as the bended arm, bared and bended arm, that's one way of looking at it, with the, uh, the fist being Provincetown and elbow being Orleans and Chatham and the elbow, I mean, the um, uh, shoulder area, uh, the w- upper cape. Isn't it marvelous when you can live in a place and hold up your limb? <laughs> it's exactly, my wife. My wife exactly. comes from Michigan and she holds up her hand <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like a fist. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt okay. you. <laughs> it, 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 but that, that's one of the reasons. Another one is that there is a counter uh, counterclockwise current that comes along. So it goes from Boston around to Sandwich and up to Provincetown. A third one, and this is probably one of the most important for some of the things, is that the, the um, depth of water changes dramatically. And it can be relatively deep offshore of Provincetown, but then it gets to uh, Billingsgate Shoal, and all of a sudden there's like you know 10 feet of water there, and it's like you know eight miles from shore, whatever it is. And then you get to the shoreline, and it's a mile and a half of sand flats. So you've got a 10-foot tide that goes from 10 feet to zero every six hours. And that is a dramatic change. So if animals are coming in and they're chasing food, they can easily get caught there. So for mammals like uh, whales and dolphins, and and it was known uh, years ago um, as a place where pilot whales stranded quite regularly, and both Native Americans and settlers used that to basically their advantage, and sometimes they drove them ashore. Lately, it has been more um, attuned to dolphins that have been stranding. And in 2012 alone, there was, I think it was 178 dolphins that stranded in Cape Cod Bay on, in that particular year. Since that time, there's, 
you know, single digits to tens that, that strand almost every year, and that's dolphins. That prompted the International Fund for Animal Welfare to actually create a dolphin clinic in Orleans. And so they can bring these stranded dolphins into a clinic where they can rehabilitate them and get them on better uh, served to get on their way. And what they could, the only thing they could do before was sort of like a triage on the shore and hope for the best. Now they're going to have a facility where they can actually treat the dolphins. In addition to that, you have the turtles, and they're in a different category. They come into the bay to chase their food in the warmer, warmer waters in the summer. They're all coming from the south. They're, they're basically tropical, and they come in for their food. And then the water cools, so they want to get out of there. And they get to, they, may, they probably get around to Provincetown, and all of a sudden they hit the ocean water that's colder than the water in Cape Cod Bay, so they stay in the bay a little while longer. And the water temperature can drop like a rock in November, even though it takes longer for water to cool. In a on hard northwest wind after a storm, it drops rapidly, and the air temperature really drops. And when they're coming up to breathe, they're getting cold stunned. And so they become lethargic, and they're just at the mercy of the waves. And if it's a north, hard northwest wind, they just get just get um, shoved into the elbow of Cape Cod, from basically from Dennis to Wellfleet. And they have been, and lately, anywhere from five to six to seven to last year, over 800 turtles that have been stranded on our beaches. So if you take that into consideration, both the whales and the turtles, and even exclusive of the turtles, Cape Cod has become the third highest for animal strandings in the world. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the interconnections between human activities and the marine world and why they're so crucial to the health of the planet. My guest is author, educator, and former marine biologist for the town of Orleans, Sandy McFarlane, and we're talking about her latest book, Swirling Currents, Controversy, Compromise, and Dynamic Coastal Change. Cindy, when I first moved to Cape Cod in the mid-1970s, seals were a rarity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why are there so many seals in our waters off Cape Cod now? What changed? What changed was the enacting of the Marine Mammal uh, Protection Act in 1972, I think it was. That law said that thou shalt not harm, kill, or harass any marine mammal. That includes um, sea otters, it includes seals, it includes whales, all of them. Seals made a comeback. Um, they did a dramatic turnaround, and they're basically, in an ecological way, a success story. Most of a lot of the seals that we have are basically coming from Sable Island and Canadian waters, but they started moving south. And so now we have thousands, if not tens of thousands, of seals that are here every summer. There's uh, gray seals in the summer, and we have harbor seals in the wintertime. They are now even uh, using our areas of Chatham and Mattaquet in uh, Nantucket as pupping areas. And so it's a, a very productive area for them. So the seals have come in droves. I mean, it's now people saying, ooh, nah, when they see a seal in the water, because they they look adorable in the water. But there's there's so many of them. So they have seal tours and all kinds of things going on. But what has also happened is that the 
seals have brought their major predator. And that's sort of a natural thing that happens. And their natural predator happens to be great white sharks. So we ended up with a situation on the Cape that was um, an ooh and an ah for how cute the sails were to all of a sudden we can't get into the water because there's sharks. So that has been a um, study in front of us, in front of our eyes, of what happens in a marine system where we are not managing it. We, we can't do anything because actually the sharks are listed as threatened, if not yeah, threatened, I think, on the list too. So you're watching this natural progression of what happens when a population explodes, something comes to sort of even the playing field. And this, in this case, it's the sharks. So now the studies are well, the behavior of sharks. What, what is making them come in? Where exactly do they go? What, where are they just before they attack a seal? What is, what is prompting them? And so there's buoys set all over the, the back shore and some in Cape Cod Bay too, to have acoustic um, pingers that are satellite tracked and they can they can watch these seals and this I mean the sharks there's probably over 300 that have been tagged at this point so now there's six to eight hundred sharks in our waters making Cape Cod also the second highest aggregation of white sharks in the world so <laughs> okay so if you talk to some fishermen um, which I don't like to do a lot I do not like to get fishermen engaged in, on the issue of seals, but they will tell you that you should just go out and shoot the seals, and some of them are more enterprising and saying you should, like, sell them for food because people eat the seals in other parts of the world. But your book tells a really, really interesting story about a species that sort of got out of control and we messed with, and that is the sea otter in right. Monterey, Monterey Bay. Bay. Right. So tell us that story. Monterey Bay is a completely different environment from us. It is a kelp bed. And the otters were hunted to almost extinction because of their fur. And when they were hunted to extinction, the um, sea urchins and... Um, uh, what's the other one? Starfish? No, it wasn't starfish. All of a sudden, I've forgotten that it was two species. Were were um, on the they they were then took over, and they started eating the kelp, and they were decimating the kelp beds throughout the whole Monterey Bay. And when a segment of Monterey Bay was uh, set aside for protection, all of a sudden the otters started to come back. And once the otters started to come back, the whole ecosystem changed. And at that time, the fishermen were not happy about the, oh, the other species with abalone yeah. finally came to me. Um, the, the fishermen weren't happy because they had developed an abalone fishery so and a sea urchin fishery. So they weren't happy to see the otters come back because then their fishery was going. But once that came back, then the, the whole ecosystem started to rejuvenate. And, and the kelp beds are extremely productive for all kinds of different creatures. And the last thing to come into Monterey Bay was the sighting of blue whales, which had been there before. And so it took years for this ecosystem to recover. But by it was, the, it was showing what happens when you take one species out of the system, 
which was a, at that point they realized was a keystone species. They didn't realize at the time was a keystone species. When you take that out, there's this cascade event of other things that, that are dependent on it that you never thought were dependent on it. And once you bring that back, everything starts to regenerate again. Okay, so here's, a, here's, a, here's my question. What do the seals offer to our ecosystem that we would be missing if they eliminated the seals? I'm not sure we know because we have that we didn't have them for so long we have them now we're watching this recovery in real time we're watching this experiment is what it's, it's doing because we cannot do anything about the seals that's the bottom line is that uh, the, but we can't only because of the marine, the marine mammal protection act protection act exactly and that's nobody's going to mess with that it doesn't look like it at this point because there are other mammals that still need this protection like the right whales. So if you look at the the law is is for this entire group of animals. You, you just can't do it with marine mammals. And they're all protected. And unless that changes, and I certainly don't see it changing anytime soon, and a lot of other people don't see it changing anytime soon either, then there's nothing that, that can be done about the seals. We What we are doing is watching the, a recovery process in real time. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. And today we're talking about how Cape Cod is a marvelous microcosm for controversies about managing the oceans all over the world. My guest is author, educator, and former marine biologist for the town of Orleans, Sandy McFarlane. Her most recent book is Swirling Currents, Controversy, Compromise, and Dynamic Coastal Change. So... NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which we hear a lot about during hurricane season, Mm -hmm. is charged with enforcing both the Marine Mammal Protection Act, thus protecting the seals, and managing commercial fisheries, thus telling the fishing community what they can catch, when, and how much. This was a big problem, your book tells us, in the management of cod, because the seals ate the cod. So how are the best minds thinking about managing the seals versus the fisheries and now the swimmers and surfers versus the <laughs> sharks? What they, it's it's madness out there. It's it's a it's a tough business, that's for sure. Um, what is what is happening now is to try to look at the ocean as a system and not just what you're just describing as the fisheries or the seals or the sharks or anything else that you can name on this, but they're all part of a system. And when you go into an an ecosystem-based management as opposed to species by species, you're trying to look at the whole picture and managing the pieces of it. And one example of a plan was the uh, Stellwagen Bank uh, National Marine Sanctuary Plan, where they used, I think, something like 670 individual uh, um, research papers to try to synthesize what is known about different animals. And research papers usually a small piece of the puzzle. It's maybe um, the... Uh, requirements of one particular animal or the interaction between two animals or, you know, it's a, it's a small part of it. But when you put them all together and now that we have computers that can get, that can manage 
enormous amounts of data, a picture starts to emerge of the system as a whole. Then you can take a look at it. And one of the things that, that they looked at that, that came from this effort was taking a look at um, the right whales uh, of where they were congregating and Stellwagen Bank, and I think humpbacks were in there too. But what were the sightings? How many observations of sightings did they find? And they found that there was this piece of Stellwagen Bank that was not as heavily uh, populated, shall we say, with observations as another part of it. And the shipping lane went right through the most um, dense area of whale sightings. So they got together with the marine... Um, industry, the shipping industry, and said, can we move the shipping lane instead of a sort of a hypotenuse of a triangle going around the Cape to Boston? Can we shift it a little bit? And after, I think it was two years of discussion, all of these people actually agreed to move the shipping lanes into almost a, a, a right angle, which is a little bit more difficult for the ships, certainly. But it avoids a lot of this area that was so heavily trafficked by the whales. Now, whether it works or not to prevent ship strikes, nobody knows because the, everything's moving. The ships are moving. The whales are moving. Uh, you don't know if a, if a whale gets struck where it got struck. But the feeling is that it couldn't hurt to move it. it. And it probably does help a lot to move these shipping lanes. But it was a massive of, uh, approach to get the the um, yeah, economics involved of the shipping world. Yeah, because that, those, uh, th that represents, the, I don't know how many countries right. all over the world. And, and the reason Stellwagen Bank is so important in, in shipping is because why? Because it, it, it's the direct route to Boston. And and it's the direct route to Boston. Okay. Right. It, it covers that area basically from Cape Cod to the North Shore. So it's direct route to Boston. So yeah, it's it was it's really was a really important move, and it, and and unlikely to work, but it did work because all these people came together and said, "Let's let's do this," and then they did. It was it's amazing. What would happen if we did nothing? We're watching doing nothing with the seals and sharks. Right oh, now. So, in other words, that represents doing nothing. That's doing nothing. That's doing nothing. We've got we've got the seals there. We can't do anything with the seals. They're protected. We got the sharks there. There's nothing we can do with the sharks because they're there. they're protected. So you have this situation where we man who always messes things up or gets our fingers in the pie is just the only thing we can do is is watch as this progresses at this point anyway. Did you get along with fishermen when you were a marine biologist? I'll bet you did. Had what, what was I tried my best. You, were, they they get angry a lot and, <laughs> and I and I understand that if somebody said to me you can't do what you love, you can't make a living. Mm -hmm. I would I would be plenty angry too, but I get the understanding that they're coming along and they're and they're uh, they understand how mu how important it all is. Working together with right, everyone right, is right. Yes, yes, that is the case. Yes. Yeah. So, do you miss all these arguments? What are you doing now? <laughs> I'm continuing to find ways of uh, uh, in increasing, not increasing, but getting these stories out, and and so I'm working on on that. Is is finding ways that I can 
do this work and keep up with what is going on and and find ways to get my story out, but get all these stories out so that people can understand better what the marine world is all about. Because we all depend on the oceans, and it doesn't matter whether you're on Cape Cod or whether you're in the middle of the country, because all of that water that evaporates is either going to put rain too much, too little, something is going to happen, whether it's going to be storms or drought, it's all because of the oceans. So we need to keep them, we need to keep everything, we need to try and get it back into balance, for one thing, but we need to appreciate it. Because the way I look at it is that it's not our world. Our world is the land. And what we we are invited to the world of those creatures that live in the ocean. It's like they are inviting us to dinner and they are setting the table for us. And yet we come back and we raid them of their, their larder. <laughs> and, and we've been doing it for centuries. And so that's really, really hard to change that mindset to something else and be grateful for what the oceans provide for us. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for talking. <laughs> I learned a tremendous amount from thank your you. book. Thank you very uh, much, Ira. I appreciate being here. My guest today has been author, educator, and former Town of Orleans marine biologist Sandy McFarlane. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Swirling Currents is published by Riverhaven Books. You can look up Sandy McFarlane on the internet. It This is a book that taught me everything I don't know by just concentrating on the traffic going up and down Route 6, <laughs> what's really going on on, others, on either side of Route 6. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the health of the oceans and the animals that live there, one interview at a time. Bye for now. <laughs>